Last week at the end of Acts chapter 4, we were left with an almost completely, well really a completely positive, almost idyllic picture of the life of the early Christian community. Right there, they were one heart and soul. They had everything in common. They were selling their assets to meet the needs of the community. And the chapter, chapter 4, closed with this shining example of the generosity of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. So what we have this morning then, in Acts chapter 5, comes as a jarring, really sobering shock. And we're surely meant to contrast Barnabas's charity with the actions of Ananias and Sapphira, which we see this morning. So already this far in the book of Acts, at this early date in the church's history, we have seen two ways that Satan attacks the church or seeks to inhibit the progress of the gospel. One is by force from without. The Sanhedrin authorities arrest and they detain, and they threaten, and they prohibit the proclamation of the gospel. And the second tactic, which we'll see here today, is by deceit, by hypocrisy from within the community. This too, it turns out, threatens the church's unity, and it mars the church's gospel witness. So with that, we'll make two points. You can find them there on the outline in your bulletin. The sin and the sentence. The sin and the sentence. First, the sin. So this is Acts chapter 5, verse 1. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. So right off, we're told, right? We see right away, they are both involved. They are both implicated in whatever's going on here. They sell a piece of property. Verse 2 makes Sapphira's complicity explicit. With his wife's knowledge, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Seems innocent enough. He kept back for himself, and he brought only, the text says, a part of it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I mean, to all appearances, it looks just like what Barnabas did, does it not? And perhaps this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they're seeking the same sort of prestige that Barnabas had in the community. So they have this gift. They bring this gift forward. Now, remember, this giving appears to be a public communal action. They're not dropping the money in a box in the back on the way out or passing a check-in kind of privately. The apostles are assembled together. It's a public action. The organ is playing, I surrender all. It's playing that because we don't have a hymn that says, I surrender most. I surrender some. Some to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender some. Notice in the text the word only. He brought only a part of it. Not all of it. So it turns out that the chief sin here is hypocrisy. 
It's presenting the part as if it were the whole. It's an adulterated offering, a diluted offering. But it's presented as if it's the full thing. Presenting the part as if it's the whole. Presenting ourselves as having a certain piety, a certain spirituality, a certain deep generosity and virtue, which we in fact do not have. Hypocrisy is a kind of mask wearing, where nobody ever sees the real you. They always get the sanitized public version. And Ananias is happy to let the apostles and the community think much better of his generosity than is actually the case. And thus, this form of hypocrisy is always a kind of deceit. It's a kind of lying. And we can and we do engage in it. If not perpetually, then regularly. Right? We do this. When we present ourselves or we let others think of us as more spiritual or more holy or more wise or more mighty or more whatever, then we are in fact, you know, what is in fact the case, right? So when we're told that the church is full of hypocrites, probably the answer is yeah. There's more than a kernel of truth in that. Now, this does not mean that we're to go around groveling about how bad we are. Nor does it mean, by the way, that we lack decorum and start sharing things which should remain private. Right? The hyper-confessionalism of our culture is also grotesque. But here's what it does mean, right? It means we're quick to acknowledge our weaknesses, our great need for mercy. Right? It means that we are, as Paul was, the chief sinner that we see and have to deal with in the world. It means that we don't willingly lead people on about the nobility of our souls. When fitting, and it's not always fitting, discretion is required, but we acknowledge our brokenness. We acknowledge our need. We acknowledge our dependence. We acknowledge our own poverty of spirit. People don't need the details. They just need to know you're a struggling sinner, dependent on grace, just like they are. You occupy the same ground that we all occupy, the ground at the foot of the cross. We should be conscientious, I think, scrupulous about presenting ourselves in a way that's authentic and corresponds to reality without being hyper-confessional about the details. After all, reality in this overlap of the ages that we live in, in this already not yet, the reality is that sanctification is a jagged, difficult process. So we don't present our partial piety as if it's the whole thing. We don't present our divided hearts as if they were whole and undivided. We know what's lurking down in there. And presenting something else is a grotesque form of lying. And if anything, if anything, Jesus teaches us that we should seek to mask our righteousness. 
Right? We should seek to mask our piety. We should seek to mask our almsgiving and our devotion from others. Even from ourselves, if possible. Right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. So Ananias places part of the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Twice we're told he kept back for himself part of the proceeds. Which might suggest there's a kind of selfish love of money involved also. But the root here is hypocrisy. He kept back. He kept back. The word that Peter uses or that Luke uses here in, uh, is also used by Paul in Titus 2. And it means to steal. Like it means to pilfer. So when you, when you engage in this kind of hypocrisy in the realm of almsgiving, it turns out it's a form of theft. And keep back is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament of Achan in Joshua 7, of which we just heard that dreadful fear-inducing reading from Joshua in the Old Testament. It says he kept back some of the spoils of war. It's the same word used here that Ananias kept back some of the proceeds. They were not Achan's to keep. He kept them for himself and he caused Israel to suffer this great defeat. He inhibited the progress of the, con- of the conquest. And yes, our hypocrisy and deceit inhibits the progress of the gospel. And as you heard, he ends up executed along with his whole family. Even his animals. Anticipating in that text the judgment, the severity of the judgment that's about to fall here in our text in Acts. So in in verse 3, Peter engages in a prophetic and a kind of prosecuting interrogation. You know, another thing this text is doing for us, it's reinforcing the unique and the foundational And the awe-inspiring, dreadful, supernatural authority of the apostles. Ananias, Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Satan is the liar, the deceiver, the father of lies. And, and notice, notice the words Peter chooses. Filled. Why has Satan filled your heart? The disciples have been filled with the Holy Spirit. But Ananias' heart has been filled with Satan himself. Much like Judas's was on the night of our Lord's betrayal, of which we read in the gospel lesson. So the spirit of truth produces truth tellers. And the spirit of the liar produces liars. So... This, this much is clear, right? Peter views this as a satanic action by Ananias. It's not simply hypocrisy. It's demonically inspired hypocrisy. And lying. He's lied to the apostles. He's lied to the church. And he has lied, most importantly, Peter says, to the Holy Spirit. And I want to return to this question of the Spirit But before we do that, we get this little insight in verse 4 as to how these transactions worked in the early church. Peter says this, 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And again, this is voluntary. No one's erasing the right of private ownership. Even after the sale, Peter says, was it not at your disposal? Like before and even after the sale, the money was Ananias's. There's no need for the deceit. And so Peter renders his judgment in verse 5. And this is a courtroom scene. You have not lied to man, but to God. Showing us both the deity and the personality of the spirit, right? To lie to the spirit is to lie to God. Right, and in verse 8, when his wife, when Sapphira comes in, she lies too. Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she says, yes, for so much. Right? At least there's good husband and wife communication. <laughs> So she has the chance to repent, right? Peter gives her a chance to repent, to tell the truth, but she repeats the lie of her husband, right? There's a kind of collusion here. Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together, colluded jointly to test the spirit of the Lord? So they have provoked and tested the spirit, just like Achan and Israel tested the spirit in the wilderness. And we must say, a few words about the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is God. So the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Son, exalted in glory. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that, that fills the heavenly sanctuary with the splendor and glory of God. It is the Holy Spirit, and thus it's the radiant burning splendor of God himself descended from the highest heavens who fills the church with his glory, making it a holy temple, making it the dwelling place of God in our midst. The spirit that's building the end time temple of God. Here's the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And Paul continues there, and this has sober relevance for our text. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Right? That's the inviolable holiness and sanctity of the church because of the one who inhabits it. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Think about that for how we speak to and treat one another. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him and you are that temple. So to lie to the church is to lie to the Holy Spirit, and it is thus to lie to the Holy Trinity, and it is this sanctity which Ananias and Sapphira have grievously violated. That is the sin which is in view. Second, the sentence that's passed, the sentence. The facts are simple, if shocking. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down. And breathed his last. Right? The same miracle working apostles, right? instruments of healing the lame man, are now instruments of divine judgment. And not merely fear. Right? The text says, great fear came upon and seized all who heard it. And about three hours later, Sapphira comes in. She's not, she has not heard what's happened. 
She lies as well. Peter pronounces the sentence. By the way, notice, in, in so doing, he incidentally informs her in the last five seconds of her life that her husband has also died. And immediately, she falls down at his feet and she breathes her last. And she's carried out, the text says, and buried beside her husband. Right? Not the side-by-side burial plots that they had planned on. She's buried there beside her husband. You have young men digging graves. They both have resisted, according to the narrative of this text, the life-giving spirit, and thus the breath of life is taken from them. And for the second time, in a couple of verses, we're told great fear, you could imagine, right? Great fear came upon the church, upon all who heard these things. And just as an aside, I, do, I want to point this out. This is the first time in the New Testament that the word church is used, ecclesia. Right? It, it's, it's rooted in this Hebrew word kahal, the assembly or the congregation of the Lord, the congregation of Yahweh, right? And it sees then the ecclesia as the new covenant form of that assembly. As the, the church is the continuation and the renewal of Israel, the place where God dwells in holy splendor, his assembly, his ecclesia. So everyone hears it, and great fear comes upon them. So, what are we to make of this extraordinary event? Well, you know, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a well-known pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. A little while back, a little while back in this century. Church now is in the PCA, 10th Pres in Philadelphia. And a, and a commentator tells us that on the basis of this text, Barnhouse would not let his congregation sing the last stanza of a hymn, which had a line in it. By the way, a line which we would probably sing without giving it much thought at all. Here's the line. Now I have given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Well, that seems innocuous enough. That's I surrender all. Or equivalent. So Barnhouse supposedly said this, if God acted today, as he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, singing, I have given to Jesus everything, would require a morgue in the basement of every church. We ought to have the same concern, frankly, when we sing I Surrender All. We, who are always keeping back a portion, can only sing that hymn as a prayer. And many, many other hymns can only be sung in hope, as a petition, as a holy aspiration in Jesus Christ, our high priest. But notice Barnhouse's comment, if God acted today, as he did in the fifth chapter of Acts. His comment points out, however, that God doesn't ordinarily act in this manner. I mean, again, if he did, most churches would be empty. But on occasion, he does. The Corinthians have 
sick and dying people in their congregation because of their presumption and their abuse at the Lord's Supper. But, but, the occasions of this kind of judgment seem to be rare, even quite rare. Not everyone, not even close to most people, it would appear, are struck down for lying or hypocrisy or other sins. Now, we have to process this, right? We have to think about this. We will reap what we sow, but God is profoundly patient in this age. The mere fact that this is an exception to the rule tells you that. God is waiting for all to come to repentance. Today is first and foremost the day of salvation. It's the day of the free offer of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yes, God's judgments and wrath are operative today, but they're operative in a very tempered way. They are largely future. They are largely held in abeyance for what the scripture calls the day of wrath. The day of judgment. So the blessings and the cursings of God's covenant, they're they're not meted out or seen with any clarity or fullness in this age. God lets the sun shine on the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. His common gifts are given to everyone. The The common effects of the curse that are on the ground and on our bodies seem to strike people randomly or it's inscrutable to us. We can't tease this out. And that's why this event stands out as striking and unusual. So what's happening? Well, what we have here is a stark reminder that judgment, and I hope this is a surprise to nobody in here, the eschatological future day of judgment is at hand in Jesus Christ. It already begins with the house of God. Peter says it is now time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And this husband and wife dual witness death penalty is an intrusion, a breaking in, a foretaste of the coming judgment. Just as the deaths around the Lord's Supper in Corinth would be the same thing. Just as the healing of the lame man was a sign of the coming new creation and the restoration of all things. So this is a sign that with the new creation comes the day of judgment. Right? It's a reminder of what we are prone to forget. We always forget that day of judgment thing. So the healings and the judgment, both done at the hands of the apostle, are both signs of the coming eschaton. So what we have in this incident then is an intrusion from the future, a reminder of the eternal death to be administered on the coming day of judgment. It's a reminder that there is a day. There is a day in which, as Paul puts it, God will judge the secrets of men. Ananias and Sapphira had their secrets judged openly early, but everyone's going to have their secrets judged. God will do it through Paul's gospel, thankfully. But there is a day. This is a taste of it. It's a day of consuming fire when the prophet says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Right? Without this day, history is meaningless. 
Either the cosmos is going to be rectified in holy justice or it's not. So here, at the outset, at the foundation of the church's life, three things conspire together to help us grasp this intrusion, this inbreaking at the end. Three things. First, there's the unrepeatable descent of the glorious Holy Spirit of God accompanied by unique signs, heavenly wind and fire. Coupled to that, you have the unique eyewitness, authoritative, once for all, awe-inspiring role of the apostles. And third, you have these unique once for all signs of both healing and judgment. Right? These three realities are teaching us in a very dramatic and vivid fashion that the church is God's holy kingdom realm, his holy theocracy, over which he shall reign in absolute purity, his holy nation over which he shall rule with unrivaled lordship. They teach us that, right, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, that it discerns the thoughts, the intentions of hearts, that no creature is hidden from its sight, but all of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that reminds us to flee to Jesus, to rest in Jesus' justifying blood continually, to cleave to the cross, without which we, in our own hypocrisy and deceit, would have no hope. You can either face that day of judgment then, or you can judge yourself now by falling down at the feet of the cross. Right? At that table, Paul says, judge yourselves there, so you won't be judged then. And so, we're driven to the gospel. And driven to the gospel, the tone, the tone of a call to holiness, which befits this house. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, right? The psalmist. That is set for the church from the very beginning. That's what this sign is doing. It's setting the tone or the ethos of the church. And the warning through this very text rings down through the centuries. Judgment begins at the house of God. So the burning glory of the spirit in our midst is to produce in us what it produced in the apostolic community. Namely, great fear. It's uncomfortable. I understand that. We would like Christianity to be a little, maybe, maybe a little more buoyant than this. The fear of the Lord, though, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the root of piety. And this fear cannot be maintained without a deep sense of the coming day, the great day, without a deep sense of the inviolable holiness of God who will not be mocked. You know what the fear of the Lord is? It is destabilizing. It, it, it will knock you around. It will destabilize everything that you think was secure. 
Here's the apostolic logic. The connection between the end, the eschaton, and the true fear of God. It works like this. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. He starts with the end. He starts with the day. He starts with the judgment. What does he say next? Therefore, we know the fear of the Lord. An eschatological consciousness of this day is the root of the fear of God. It is impossible to fear God without a vivid apprehension of that day and our standing there. And in the apostolic church, it was not only compatible with joy. This is the form that apostolic joy takes. Which might mean we have a lot, we have a sort of synthetic version of Christian joy most of the time. Right? This is the form of true joy. Who was the man who feared the Lord the most? Perfectly, with reverence, with sweating, and blood, and anguish, and cries, and a sense of facing that terror that was before him on Calvary? Our Lord Jesus. And yet... Hebrews 1, right, citing Psalm 45, says that one, that man of sorrows, that man of trembling fear of God, was anointed with the oil of joy above all of his companions. Your joy cannot exceed your fear of God. And your fear of God cannot exceed your vivid sense of the day. Right, C.S. Lewis famously said of Aslan the lion, it's not just that God is good, he's scary good. Scary good. Thus we cling to Jesus, our righteousness. You are not going to stand on that day apart from his obedience. His blood, his covering you. He is your righteousness, he is your sanctification. And we are thus called by the apostle to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. To work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Because it is God, the thrice holy God, who's at work in us. We are to mix on the altar of God, Spurgeon said, the sacred compound of trembling with joy. Trembling with joy. And thus we will echo the description of the the church in Acts. A little bit later in Acts chapter 9, it says the church was, get this conjunction now. The church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now those are two things we don't normally put together. They were walking in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as such, the church was multiplying. Glory be to God, our judge and our savior in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.